Here's Your Red Flag is intended for mature audiences only. Many, if not most, of our episodes will include topics such as psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, and detailed narcissistic and toxic behaviors. We are not professional therapists. If you are in need of professional help, please contact the appropriate authorities. Some names have been changed for anonymity purposes. The opinions expressed by the guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lisa or myself. You can find additional information about this podcast in the show notes, as well as on our website, heresyourredflag.com. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I flew up to the mirror Well, there was nothing that I seen You lie, I cried The butterfly walked in my eyes You lie, I cried The butterfly walked in my eyes We would like to welcome our wonderful listeners back to join us for episode seven. We pick up from last week on the discussion of the main buzzwords and concepts of narcissistic and toxic relationships. Thanks so much for joining us. So we are going to move on to the devalue stage of terms and um, devaluation, just as a recap, is because of their emotionally primitive, perfect or worthless thinking, because they're stuck at that developmental stage of a young child and their insistence on unattainable perfection, narcissists in relationships, whether it be with partners, family members or friends, nearly inevitably become disillusioned. And because they lack a moral compass, again, because they're a stunted child, They do not hesitate to express their disappointment in a range of devaluing hostile behaviors, including judgment, belittlement, and rage, if not outright abandonment and stonewalling and the silent treatment. Mm -hmm. And this is because they're injured. And so Mm -hmm. narcissistic injury occurs when the narcissist is hurt emotionally. And just like that water balloon example I gave, so a narcissistic injury causes that little pinprick in their fragile egos. And so they have to do anything and everything to stop the leak. And so narcissistic injury can be a minor thing, but it can also be major that would then trigger any sort of outburst, whether it be minor or major, but they will always react to a narcissistic injury. Mm -hmm. So the next one that we're going to talk about is the silent treatment. Most of us know what it's like to be hurt by words, the cruel ones, the insensitive ones, the ones that replay themselves over and over again in our minds. But many of us have also been hurt by the absence of words, by the spaces between them, by silences that truly can become deafening. Some people use silent treatment abuse to manipulate and control their loved ones and even those that they don't love, people that they work with or whatever. This is a form of emotional abuse, and it's normal to not to want to talk to somebody when you're angry or frustrated. In most cases, this happens occasionally and blows over. However, if a person regularly uses the silent treatment to influence or control your behavior, they are being emotionally abusive. If someone is giving you the silent treatment in order to control your actions, they are causing silent treatment abuse. It is a form of manipulation. Abusers can use the silent treatment to manipulate you into certain actions. For example, they might give you the silent treatment in order for you to give them sex or money. If a person is giving you the silent treatment to gain something for themselves, they are showing a sign of emotional abuse. 
The silent treatment is a refusal to verbally communicate with another person, a way of withholding connection. It can be a spouse who stops talking after a fight or a displeased parent who refuses to speak or make eye contact with a child. Psychologists say that when it becomes a part of a pattern of controlling or punishing behavior, it can be abusive. Emotional abuse is a series of behaviors and actions that are meant to erode a person's self-esteem and self-worth. Over time, that behavior can make people more dependent on an abuser. You know, the silent treatment is such a self-centered, selfish way of behaving. It seems to be a trademark of a lot of narcissists. I actually had a boss who used the silent treatment years ago when I first got out of college. I was just talking to my mom about him last night. At one point, I remember he and I having a conversation and him telling me about his father and what a cruel and punishing man his father was to him. And now, all these years later, thinking back, I'm sure his father used the silent treatment on him. And it's just the cycle continued. Mm -hmm. It was just very interesting working for this man, how it just shut everything down with all of the staff. It was a treatment center. We kind of needed to communicate with each other about our patients. When the top dog is not communicating with us, we scurried around and tried to figure things out. And it was, it was really dysfunctional, not you the know, best way to lead. Not at all. I had a light bulb moment. Oh yeah. Go just for now. It. You know, so one thing in my journey of the past two years certainly has been kind of looking within and trying to understand my role in that marriage and wanting to really take accountability for any any part that I played in that marriage not working out and one thing that I that has always kept coming back to me is that I'm a poor communicator but something you said really caused a light bulb to go off for me and that is going all the way back to our first two episodes how we're conditioned and kind of pre-wired to behave and react certain ways to people. And I think my communication style stems from that. And people teach us how to treat them. And so with my father and with number two, I quickly learned that even the most innocent of questions like, hey, what's what's wrong? What's what's going on? Would just incite such rage from both of them that I stopped asking because I learned I don't want to get yelled at from just exhibiting some sort of concern about them. And then I also stopped communicating my wants and needs, which I think might be why it's so hard for me even now to delegate and to tell my children, you know, they had chores and things growing up, but it, it can be uncomfortable for me to, to tell my adult daughter, it's been a rough day at work. And I think I just need 30 minutes in my room. That is so hard for me because I'm afraid of her reaction. Now she's never given me a bad reaction, but I think I'm conditioned to think that way. So that's a huge light bulb moment for me that maybe a little grace in, yeah, I, I don't communicate the best and here's why. And so I'm going to start practicing that a little bit better. I don't know. Well, that's very interesting. Do you think that translates to the silent treatment in the eyes of maybe your kids or people that you're holding back on communicating with? 
Yeah, I I don't think I give my kids the silent treatment, but I do definitely withdraw. Mm. And that can be interpreted, I guess, as the silent treatment. I think in so. Some people's eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. What a what a neat light bulb mm-hmm. to go off for you. Mm-hmm. So now you know. Now I can go on to the next level of healing. Like, all right, this is why, perhaps, you know, not to blame number two or blame my father for my shortcomings, but I think it does have a play a role in it. And so now mm-hmm. that I recognize that, I can move forward and practice that communication. I think that's that's really interesting. Anytime you're in a relationship, you learn, you get programmed into that relationship, healthy or otherwise. And you learn how to treat each other. You show each other how to treat each other. And again, healthy or otherwise, those become neural pathways that are laid down. And, you know, I know you don't want to blame and, you know, and you want to take responsibility for where it's your responsibility, but acknowledging that those pathways were laid down in the abusive relationships with your father. And number two is good also to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Acknowledging those pathways that were laid down is definitely part of your healing. Mm -hmm. Another big term in the devaluing phase is isolation. As a healthy relationship matures, a new balance gradually emerges. Slowly, you and your partner begin to grow into each other's lives. You meet and socialize with each other's family and friends while still enjoying quality time together. At the same time, both partners continue to pursue relationships and social time with family and friends on their own. In an abusive relationship, however, this healthy balance does not emerge. Isolation in which the abuser slowly severs all emotional ties except the one to him or her is the earliest sign of emotional and or physical abuse. And unfortunately, it is extremely effective, subtle, and difficult to detect. Here are some important red flags to pay attention to. Maybe your partner insists on as much one-on-one time as possible. This should be part of any long-term healthy relationship, but when all of your time is spent just with your partner to the exclusion of other relationships, it could be a warning sign that he or she is trying to isolate you. While his or her request for all of your time can feel romantic, that romance can be a thin cover to hide what is, in fact, an increasing amount of control and domination. I certainly saw this red flag, not at the time, of course, because it is a slow boil, but that was a huge hallmark of my early relationship with number two. Mm. Another sign is that your partner might refuse to interact with your friends and family. Family and friends are an important part of your life. And so he should want to get to know these people. An abuser, however, will actively avoid these relationships. They may refuse to spend time with your friends or family, and they may be so actively rude or unpleasant to them that your friends or family in turn refuse to spend time with them. I feel like narcissists may actually, you know, sabotage events too by behaving badly. And so they're not invited back and they might do that on purpose. Yep, I agree. So the tactic of isolating you from your friends and family also aids the abuser's emotional manipulation and gaslighting. So they'll eventually deflect the blame for the worsening relationships that you're having with your family and friends. 
Or maybe your partner will invent reasons why you shouldn't see friends and family. Your partner can cancel your plans without asking or come up with alternative plans anytime you mention spending time with your friends and family. The spontaneity can feel romantic at first, but when the behavior becomes a pattern of preventing you from seeing your family and friends, it should be a warning sign. Your partner could use jealousy, guilt, or other emotional manipulation because you enjoy spending time with your friends. For example, maybe he implies that spending time with other friends is wrong, when in fact it's perfectly normal and healthy. He or she might say that you care more for your friends or family than you do for him or her. That's just manipulation. Or he might or she might constantly tell you that they are the only one who really understands you or really loves you, and therefore you should be loyal to them by excluding other people from your lives. Ugh. Yeah. It's just dirty. <laughs> it's it's just dirty. Mm-hmm. Claiming to be jealous can be another powerful tool in the abuser's arsenal. To prevent your partner's jealousy, you give up certain friendships to prove that you love him or her. And giving up these friendships again plays into the abuser's gaslighting narrative that your isolation is your own fault. You know, and you'll do that. You'll give up these people. And the loneliness that follows is just such a desolate, desperate place to be. Mm -hmm. You know, the narcissist or the abuser wants to become your world. Mm -hmm. They never become your world (laughs) because we're going to talk about it in the Red Flags episode coming up. Uh, next week when they isolate you and they become your solid world that you orbit around, they haven't bonded with you. You've bonded with them, but they have not bonded with you. And it's desolate and lonely. Mm -hmm. And I think there's always a subtle awareness on our part that they have not bonded with us. And Mm -hmm. so that keeps us in that tap dancing mode to get them to bond to us. Yes. And so we'll do anything it takes, even if that means not going to a friend's party or not going to a social function with work friends. Mm. We're just so desperate all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so unfulfilling, you know, emptying. It's just awful. It is. It reminds me of the little gerbil running on the wheel, you know, never getting anywhere. You're just expending all this energy. Mm Mm-hmm. At least the gerbil is getting a workout. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Another telltale sign of isolation is that your partner checks in on you constantly. And, you know, one thing I notice with younger people, especially, is when they're just in relationships, friends, or they're in that talking stage, or maybe they're, you know, full on dating But they have these different apps where they can share their location with each other. And I just really think that is dangerous. I too. And unhealthy when you're married and you have children and you're on a family phone plan. And I think that the features that our phones have today are wonderful to see where our kids are. And that's important Mm -hmm. if their curfew is midnight and they're not home. That's really neat to have. And it's it's great to have with a with a healthy spouse as well. You know, you're not looking at it all the time, but you know, if they're supposed to be home at six and it's eight and they're not home, it's kind of, you know, as a safety measure, good yeah. to know where they are. But in terms of social media apps, sharing your location and 
I just don't think that's healthy. What do you think? I agree with you. And the first time I ever saw Snapchat and one of my kids showed me all the little dots of people gathered, like, look, everybody's at this person's house. It's like, why did, you know, and who all, who can see Mm -hmm. your little person dot? Well, anybody that follows me on Snapchat, well, you know, (sighs) she's got a thousand people that follow her. That's that she doesn't have a thousand friends in high school. Mm -hmm. So who are all these people that can see her location? Mm -hmm. I mean, now we're going venturing into another thing, but that is not healthy. But if you're dating somebody and they can see your location constantly, that's just not natural. (laughs) And it establishes early on a foundation of mistrust. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And it can really foster jealousy. Yes. Oh, that is a really good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another kind of along that line that, you know, your partner is wanting to know your location, maybe your partner insists on knowing all of your passwords. Again, that's not okay that you have a right as a human being to have private things private. And because you want things private doesn't mean you're necessarily hiding anything. So that's a huge red flag. Also, if your partner is checking in on you constantly, or I know in my case, uh, number two would want me to send him a picture. For example, if I said I was going somewhere, he would say, send me a picture because he didn't believe that I was really there. And that's a red flag. That's, you know, and again, all of those things, you know, especially that, you know, hey, send me a picture from, you said you were at a park, send me a picture. Well, then I started thinking, well, I just won't go. I just won't go anywhere because he doesn't trust me. And that's an, that's a terrible feeling for me as a wife to not be trusted. So if he doesn't trust me, I'm just not going to go anywhere. And then I'll, I'll prevent him from feeling that mistrust. And then I mm-hmm. won't feel bad that he doesn't trust me. And then and I that- start second guessing myself. Well, am I, am I wrong for going to a park? Like it was crazy making actually crazy making. Am I, Am I wrong for being at Walgreens? And if he asks me at the end of the night, what did you do today? And I say nothing. And he'd say, you're lying. You were at Walgreens. I mean, it's just so manipulative and controlling and just not a way to live. It's so awful. It is. And it furthers the isolation. It does. Mm -hmm. Okay. Our next term is divide and conquer. This is a primary strategy that narcissists use to assert control, particularly within their family, to create divisions among the individuals in the family or the work setting, etc. This weakens and isolates the family members, making it easier for the narcissist to manipulate and dominate. The narcissist sets up an environment of competition and terror in which all those individuals are trying to avoid the attack, often at each other's expense. He or she favors some of the members in the family and scapegoats others. And this breeds mistrust and resentment among siblings and between the other parent and children. Such dynamics can also play out in the work setting where a boss uses the same kind of tactics to control and manipulate their employees. Mm -hmm. I know that you... (laughs) definitely saw this in your second marriage. Yes. Number two would use one of the daughters, I believe, uh, was his favorite and the other two knew it. And he would definitely use that to his favor. And gosh, the damage, the damage that does Mm -hmm. to a child's psyche. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And just being able to, the power that they have to, like you said, divide and conquer while building up one person or more than one person, they're tearing down others and they're pitting each other against each other. Like I was not in competition with my stepdaughter, yet he set it up to be that way. And he set it up to be that he would be the winner, that both of us would just beg and crave for his attention. And both of us would try to outdo the other. And he just ate that up. And it is sick. It It is is absolutely sick. Mm -hmm. Absolutely sick. You know, I was in a situation several years ago. It was a volunteer organization. And the gal who was president was hugely narcissistic. And she thought she could divide and conquer us on her board and would say negative things about me to somebody else. Well, little did she know we were all very good friends and we'd get together for lunch and compare notes and, you know, just what a dumb dumb. Mm-hmm. It's a huge flag if you start hearing your superior talk negatively about the subordinates. That's a, just a lovely red flag just handed to you, gift wrapped, mm-hmm. you know, to really pay attention to because mm-hmm. you can bet your bottom dollar that if she's saying those things to you about somebody else, she is definitely saying those things about you to other people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All in an effort to make themselves seem better. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we all viewed her as such a fool. She created her own downfall from that because we didn't trust our leadership. Mm-hmm. She's something else. Uh-huh. Narcissistic rage is another aspect or term that we could use during the devaluing stage. So narcissistic personalities often react with rage when their underlying feelings of vulnerability and shame are triggered. They tend to even take the smallest of slights, which most people would easily brush off as intensely humiliating. When this happens, their fabricated perfect self and overblown feelings of entitlement are threatened, setting off a wild rage response. Narcissistic rage is terrifying, sometimes physically violent and far beyond normal anger. It is emotionally and physically traumatizing for those on the receiving end, particularly children, who naturally blame themselves for adults' reactions. And the perfect example that I've already shared of number two's narcissistic rage was our conversation over dinner one time about going to a concert at the rodeo. And the following day was just that rageful episode that lasted hours in another telltale sign of abusers versus truly mentally ill people is that abusers have the ability to turn it on and off. And during that narcissistic rage episode, or at the end, when my daughter came home, he turned it off like a switch and then turned on the charm. That's a a huge indication that I do believe he is mentally ill, but I'm talking about, you know, something like schizophrenia that's not, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's beyond, way beyond our control. A telltale sign. But narcissistic rage is very scary. And again, it could be the slightest, most innocent of things that that can set that off. Wow. And just like I didn't cause that rage, you know, asking about a concert should not cause rage. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that I could do to stop it. And I tried everything and to the point of getting physically harmed myself when I tried to stop it. So there's something within him, some little bit of insecurity or something, some past history that triggered that for him. And I I think it meant for him, I think what actually triggered that was 
my longing to be intimate with him, again, not sexually, but feel that closeness and oneness with him was achieved by doing things together. And this is something he was not interested in. So rather than say, yeah, that doesn't really interest me, but what if we did X, Y, or Z, like a normal compromising couple would do, or maybe a normal compromising couple would say, you know, that's not really my jam, but I'm going to go because it makes her so happy, right? Or why don't you and your daughter go? Yes. You know, just, yes, y'all couldn't even go. Mm -hmm. You knew if you went with your daughter, you would be punished for it. Oh, yes. Yes. So that feeling of insecurity, which I think is why he sabotaged all of our trips, is because he knew what I needed was that closeness and he couldn't provide it. So that triggered in him some insecurity and shame. So he'll rage. He'll rage out to show me who's in control and to show me, don't you dare ask for what you want or need anymore. Wow. All right. So our next term is called object constancy. People with narcissistic personality disorder suffer from a lack of object constancy or the ability to sustain in real time an awareness of overall positive feelings and past positive experiences with people in their lives when they're disappointed or hurt by them in some way. When triggered, the narcissist's continuity of perception collapses into present moment reactive emotion. If his or her child forgets to do a chore, for example, the narcissistic father may become enraged and punish him or her, you know, seeing that behavior as spiteful or irresponsible, even if the child is usually conscientious. I know that, you know, we talked about number two and how he threw the daughter out onto the porch when she wasn't performing to his expectations. She was cleaning up. She was, but she may have stopped to look at a funny meme or, you know, make a joke with her sister. I don't know what the circumstances were. It doesn't really matter because she is a very good girl who absolutely was on her best behavior when she was around her father and his overreaction, you know, grabbing her and putting her out onto the porch is a perfect example of this. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about, well, you're perfect illustration of narcissists being like four-year-olds throwing temper tantrums. And that illustration is accurate because they are arrested in their development, like scientifically, cognitively arrested in their development. They seem to be stunted at this point of object constancy or object permanence where this is where we see our kids when they're toddlers or babies have that separation anxiety or mom walks out of the room and they start to cry it's mm. because they they're unable cognitively to be aware that even though i can't see them or see her mom's still in the in the house and that's where they get stunted and this black and white thinking mm. comes into existence and there's a lot of discourse and different opinions about what makes a narcissist but a lot of experts do agree that there is some of this hot and cold treatment when they were a child, mm. that this all or nothing type parenting of you're either all good or you're all bad. And I certainly experienced that growing up. I wasn't worth hearing. My opinion didn't matter or I was the best thing, the smartest, the best. There was huge discrepancy of being all good or being all bad. You know, I would tend to agree with that's one of the 
factors that makes a narcissist is this lack of object constancy or object permanence. They're just really stunted in their development. And and the reason I agree with this is because they can't change. And so we go back scientifically, why can't they change? And I think it's it's something cognitive. Yeah, we're going to have an expert on. Um, we're actually interviewing her this Saturday, and she's going to talk about the three areas of the brain. The last area to develop is the frontal lobe or the prefrontal frontal lobe, which is the cognition. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's something there that just didn't develop. And that usually develops in your mid to later 20s. Mm-hmm. You know, even people in their early 20s and some of the most formative years of their life don't have that developed part of their brain yet, which is the cognition, which is the thinking, the logical and the rational ability to override your emotions mm-hmm. and and clamp down on raging or reacting to people who displease you. But something was, like you said, stunted mm-hmm. in their development, and they don't do an override of their reactions and their emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet what is so confusing is they, they can, they can turn it on and turn it off. So mm-hmm. it's just really oh, that baffling. Is confusing. That is mm-hmm. confusing because they are able to mm-hmm. you know, turn on a dime when a certain other person walks in the room. Mm-hmm. They have that image to uphold. Wow. Mm-hmm. And with their main supply, they typically let their hair down the most. Mm-hmm. And next, let's talk about gaslighting. This term comes from a 1938 play called Gaslight. It was eventually remade into a movie. But in the play and in the movie, a husband is a master manipulator. And he is trying to convince his wife that she is losing her mind so that he can eventually have her committed because he has his sights on her financial windfall. And so he does things like turn down the gas in these lanterns in their home. That's why it's called gaslight to make her think that she's going crazy. And he would move objects in the house and then blame her for losing them. So this mental manipulation is what gaslighting is. Narcissistic gaslighting occurs when people with NPD or narcissistic personality disorder refuse to admit that they are wrong or have done something bad to their mate. Even when they're caught in the act, they will often try to convince the other person that he or she is paranoid and is imagining the whole thing. So if you remember remember back to my example of the song purchase, where number two purchased a song that had lyrics in it alluding to when you're an unfulfilled partner, you, you will seek fulfillment elsewhere. It's a cheating song. When I first asked him about that, his very first reaction was, F you, Lisa, F you. And so that's this narcissistic rage and gaslighting. He tried to convince me that the song didn't mean anything to him. And then later on, he said to me, you think you're so smart, alluding to, you know, you think you've figured this whole thing out. So gaslighting is an insidious form of abusive behavior. It makes victims question their very instincts that they've counted on to survive their whole lives. And it makes us unsure about anything. And this is so true in my relationship with number two, just the constant second guessing. And remember that acronym that was so popular a long time ago, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I kind of made all my decisions based on what would number two do or what would number two say? If I did this, you know, I planned all my 
activities and functions based on whether he would approve or not, just in every effort to stay out of his rage. So gaslighting is a manipulative tactic where the mentally healthy individual is subjected to conditioning behavior, so they doubt their own sanity. The target starts to believe that their perception of reality is false. The narcissist may simply deny saying something didn't happen when it did. They might tell you that what you heard is wrong or it's a lie about an event or situation. And then over time, we start to think that we're either confused or going crazy or both. What happens then as a result of that is we start relying on the narcissist for the truth. And that can be a very, very slippery slope. Very well said. So the next few buzzwords that we're going to go through pretty much fall under gaslighting, where you're doubting yourself as you're interfacing or relating with a toxic narcissistic person. And the next one is stonewalling. And this is where the abuser acts confused and he just pretends he doesn't understand what the victim is telling him and withholds feelings. Mm -hmm. And after stonewalling, or not after, but sometimes at the same time, they can also do something called countering. And this is where the abusive partner then starts to question our memories and thoughts. And they might say things like, you know, I never said that, or wow, you have a very active imagination, or you should get your facts straight. You never remember things correctly. And so these statements really plant seeds of doubt within us and keep us captive and under their control. Mm -hmm. The next one is blocking or diverting. The abuser refuses to answer or comment, changes the subject, faults the victim, accusing or blaming them, or faults the victim for acting the way they did. Some examples are, I'm not going to go through this again. We've already talked about this. You are always picking fights. You always have to be right. Mm -hmm. They can also trivialize things. And so this is where the abuser makes our thoughts and needs seem unimportant. And they could say things such as, this is not even important. Why would you let something so stupid come between us? You're just too sensitive. You always mm. blow things out of proportion. Let it go already. Uh, one of number two's favorites that he told his family members as the reason to our divorce was that I had really bad PMS. <laughs> that was great. Such a jerk. Yeah. So that rude. was great. Yeah. 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 So that so. lady I was talking about earlier, that was a big thing is I'm just joking. Can't you take a <sighs> joke? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. And mm -hmm. she would say it to a room of us. She had this button made. Remember buttons that you pin on yourself? Yeah. And it said no whining. And, or it said whining and then it had the the big red thing with yeah. the cross mark through it mm -hmm. and she'd wear that to all of the meetings indicating to us that we're not really allowed to speak and express any concerns or doubts about things and did not realize she had a room full of people that could contribute we had to sit there like mind numb robots and just take what she spooned out mm -hmm. completely trivialized us mm -hmm. Some examples that come to mind with trivializing with number two was the birthday and Christmas, any sort of sanctioned holiday that he really rebelled against 
and trivialized that and made it sound selfish that I was Mm. selfish for wanting to celebrate my birthday or Valentine's Day. He also trivialized my son's possible brain aneurysm, saying it was no more of a bigger deal than an ingrown toenail. You know, another incident with my dad I'll never forget is I had a pet cat growing up and she loved to climb trees and she climbed a tree and stayed up there. She was on the tallest limb and there she stayed. And of course she was meowing like they do, like she's panicking and can't get down. And so I don't know why, but I called my dad, you know, he lived in a different city. But I called my dad and I think I was just looking for some comfort or maybe some advice on how to get this cat down from a tree. And the first thing he said was, Lisa, have you ever seen a cat skeleton in a tree? Cats don't die up there. It's going to eventually come down. And so he just really minimalized my little trauma at the time. I was probably in third or fourth grade. And I just really wanted to be comforted and maybe get some advice. So yes, they are masters at trivializing anything that might or have the potential to damage their their egos. The last thing you need is a visual of the cat skeleton in a tree. <laughs> because yeah. as a third or fourth grader, you've got more object constancy going on. And mm-hmm. oh my gosh, this might be the first skeleton in a tree. Yes. You know, and now looking back at it. I'm sure he felt completely helpless in the moment and he maybe wanted to help me, you know, help his daughter, but I'm, you know, 150 miles away at that point and he can't help me. And he's certainly not going to reach out to my mother and say, can you go help Lisa get her cat out of the tree? Because they had a, a lot of animosity between them. Yeah. So those normal human emotions of mm-hmm. sadness and helplessness and care and Needing. concern for others are Needing. wounding. Needing. Mm-hmm. Needing comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very, those are very vulnerable emotions that narcissists have to keep at bay at all costs. It's really damaging to relationships. Truly. Mm-hmm. All right. Our next one is intentional forgetting or denial. Really just a blatant lie, not neurotic denial, as there's no inability to face some reality of a traumatic experience causing the rejection. It is just simply a lie, many times used to just dodge accountability. The abuser denies that things ever happened or denies promises he made to the victim to prevent them from getting a resolution. Some examples of this, I never did that. I never said that. That never happened. I have never been there before. You never told me that. You were confusing me with someone else. There's nothing wrong with my memory. You know, I have a terrible memory. You have anything to add to that? Yeah, I have a really good quote and I wanted to get it exactly right. Interestingly, I know I just told a story about a cat staying up in a tree, but this intentional forgetting or denial really goes hand in hand with this quote that a counselor once told me, which is some people would rather climb a tree and tell a lie than stay on the ground and tell the truth. And I would find number two would lie about the most insignificant things such as Well, I guess it's not insignificant looking back, but he would text and tell me that he had to work late or his truck was broken down or blah, blah, blah. And he maybe forgot or didn't consider that I could see his location at all times. And he wasn't where he said he was. So why lie about that? Why, you know, why say I'm stuck on the side of this highway, if you're really stuck on the side of the other highway, it doesn't really matter what highway you're stuck on, but just lying kind of for insignificant ways. It's just mind blowing to me, but yeah, experts at lying for sure. 
the effort it would take to make the lie versus just sticking with the truth, right? They put Mm -hmm. so much, that's, you take all that effort to climb a tree to tell a lie when you can stay on the ground and not expend any energy. What is that? I love that. Narcissists thrive on chaos also. And we've alluded to this a little bit already, but this triangulation is another very common term when you're studying narcissists. This is where narcissists provoke rivalry and jealousy between people. And that creates a triangle in order to boost their own ego. And I spoke a little bit about this regarding number two and one of his daughters and me being that constant kind of competitive mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what they do also in triangulation is their motive is to pit people against each other, but their motive is also like a loyalty test to see which is going to be the most loyal. And then once they figure out who's going to be the most loyal, then they pit the other against the other by using things like gaslighting, manipulation, you know, they'll plant seeds of doubt in the other person's mind about the other person. So it's just, it would be so much easier to just be nice. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. The links they go. The links they go. Yep. So our next term is one that I think a lot of people might be familiar with, projection. And a narcissist is an expert at projecting their own character flaws or bad behavior onto others. They will not hold themselves accountable for any wrongdoing and will blame others for the very things that they do themselves. The main objective is to make themselves feel superior. We have a friend that is in a toxic relationship and the boyfriend of our friend constantly projects his fears that she's going to cheat. You know, it's, it's just such an unfair position to be placed in. She listens to this podcast. So Mm -hmm. keep learning girl. Well, what that does is it probably causes her to want to prove her loyalty and her love even more. Mm. And that's how he maintains this very healthy air hose, right? He's got Mm. lots of supply coming his way because she's, Mm -hmm. she's going to say, I would never cheat on you. You're the only one for me. I'm so committed to you. And she's going to say all the things he longs to hear, but he doesn't have a penetrable soul necessarily Mm. because at his core, he believes he's unworthy or he believes whatever he believes. And so by keeping her constantly proving herself, that really boosts his ego. And remember that water balloon illustration. It's like that I Love Lucy episode where they're on a boat and all those water leaks and they start like chewing gum and trying to fill the holes. It's not going to work. But that's what she has to go through is that constant performance and constant proving. And she can't ever prove that. That's some hole that a human can never fill. Right. It's got to come from him. Mm -hmm. And he is stuck Mm -hmm. in his fear. And then he projects that onto her. Yep, absolutely. Oh, I like this next one. Narcissistic word salad. I don't like this next one, but (laughs) I like that we're covering this next one. Yeah. So narcissistic word salad is a more accessible way to say schizophrenia, which Mm -hmm. is a a form of disorganized and unintelligible speech that is characteristic of some forms of mental illness. 
So these are like when the narcissist says a whole lot of words, but doesn't make sense at all. And you're just left kind of head scratching like, what? What was that? I mean, it sounds maybe really good, but it has zero meaning whatsoever. And it's just really confusing and off-putting. And I think the only reaction that a target of narcissistic abuse could have is really silence. And I think that might be an underlying tactic to using word salad is just here, I'm going to throw all this confusing stuff at you to keep you guessing, but also to keep you silent, which will prevent you from questioning me. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's off-footing. Mm. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, so word salad can include things like circular reasoning, outright lies, denials, or mischaracterizations of past events to avoid being wrong or to avoid having to take responsibility for something. And it just leaves the target person completely confused. Mm -hmm. And like you said, just shuts them up Mm -hmm. and with no argument because there's just too many things to tackle. Right. You don't even know where to start. It gets you off course and you forget what was the, what were we even talking about? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think along with word salad and the friend that, that we have that you we were just alluding to is constantly bringing up the past. Yep. Like nothing is ever finished. There's n- never any closure and specifically events that don't even involve the narcissist, you know, and right. those events were probably shared with the narcissist in just a moment of vulnerability. During the love openness. bombing stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here's an example of, how those past events are being used against her. Right. Yeah. She can't win because at any moment, the other shoe's going to drop. You know, things that come to mind would be phrases like, you don't really love me or how do I know you won't cheat on me? Mm -hmm. How do you ever satisfy that? There's no, there's no answer that would satisfy his longing. It's as if the, narcissists or a lot of narcissists don't have that frontal lobe that ever fully developed and they can't they can't override emotions and it seems like word salad comes out of emotions and not the ability to stop the reaction yeah Yeah. and he's very much caught in this all good or all bad mentality Mm -hmm. and remember she did not cause his insecurity. So there's nothing she can do to remedy that. That's right. She wants this relationship to work so much that causes her to have blinders to these red flags in his behavior that are constantly popping up. Mm -hmm. And she's not wanting failure. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Mm -hmm. to see the relationship end might be categorized as a failure. I would categorize it as a win for her. Right. right. But for her, it might be categorized as a failure. And let's not forget all of the chemicals that are going on and her genuine love for him. Mm -hmm. And when we genuinely love someone, love is blinding and we can make excuses and we can settle for things. And I know I said, many times to myself, no one is perfect. So if I give up on this relationship, then another person 
is just going to have, you know, you, you sell your used car because it has too many miles. You pick up a used car with fewer miles, but now it has engine trouble. Well, you get rid of that one. Well, the next one has brake trouble, you know, so there's always going to be something with people and including ourselves. We are not perfect, but because she is so success minded, this could be viewed as a, a failed relationship. And so I can see how that would also be a deterrent, but, yes. but heavily on, on the love side. And I, I know I told you, and I know I told my counselor, I just love him, you know? And I, I told you that and he's like, what you love? And you rattled off like some abusive <laughs> things. I was like, okay, maybe I don't love that, but we're loving those good moments. We're constantly on that hamster wheel trying to get those good moments back. You described it in a past episode, that middle person, Mm -hmm. you were always trying to get that middle person back that was just in the sweet spot, you know, of that, that guy, that middle person is who I love. Mm -hmm. I don't like the one below and the one above that he shows me. And you're constantly trying to get that middle person back who shows himself fewer and fewer times as the relationship progresses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a unwinning battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So onward onto invalidation Invalidation is a manipulative tactic used to get a target to believe that their thoughts, opinions, and beliefs are wrong, unimportant, or don't matter. Mm-hmm. Case in point, my stepdad asking, where do you want to eat tonight? And I would give an, an answer and he, he would flat out say, your opinion doesn't matter. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that, Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the effect is pretty much you just start saying, I don't care. Where do you want to go? And then they win. Right. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Our next term is scapegoat. So a scapegoat is blamed for just about everything that goes wrong. For example, a child in a family may be singled out and subjected to unwarranted negative treatment. And I could definitely see this in my relationship with number two. Uh, One of his daughters was continually the scapegoat in his eyes he made her that and ridiculed her for different things as a result of that they have a severed relationship it's really really unfortunate narcissists have to keep a really tight circle of people and so in order to keep a tight circle of people they have to cast some out so some could be a scapegoat they always have to have a person to hate which is interesting because number two said that about his mother but i think that describes him perfectly. Wow. So wounding mm-hmm. to think my father doesn't like me, doesn't love me, mm-hmm. doesn't treat me kindly. Mm-hmm. It's just not the ideal that a daughter wants to have with her father. Right. You know, and, and his favoritism really triangulated the children because they were in constant competition with each other for his attention and for his affection, which again, elevated his ego because they're all pining after him. But eventually what he got was zero. He thought he would he would have all of them pining after him, but now he has none. So narcissism is a lonely place to be. And a lot of them don't have many people consistently in their life. Most people fall by the wayside in a narcissist's wake. Yes. That's a big red flag, which we will talk Ooh. about. I, I know that's I know that is on our list yeah. of our huge red flag list, but mm-hmm. look and see what's, what's left in their wake. Huge mm-hmm. red flag. Mm-hmm. Huge. 
Our next topic is baiting. And this is any sort of provocation that the narcissist might throw out there to provoke a reaction from you. And they do this especially in public. They will provoke you into responding in an angry, emotionally charged way, but then they'll use that emotion against you later, usually coming back around to say, how could you humiliate me? Or how could you do that, you know, in public? And again, it's just another tactic of manipulation and control. Our next one, I was not familiar with, but loved it when I read about it. Again, I don't mean love, but you know, <laughs> it's, yes. it's a good one. It is Faux-pology, and that's F-A-U-X-P-O-L-O-G-Y. Because narcissists refuse accountability and believe that they're always right, they rarely, if ever, genuinely apologize. Instead, they toss out a false apology or a faux-pology meant to deflect and meant to induce guilt or antagonize. Examples are, I'm sorry you think I'm such a disappointment as a mother. I'm sorry you interpreted something so innocent as unfair. I'm sorry you are so sensitive. I'm sorry you can't understand how others feel. Or I'm sorry you are so angry. Those are not apologies. Those are faux apologies. Love that. Mm -hmm. And they just re-victimize the victim. Oh, gosh, yeah. Put the blame right back on the other person. Mm. Another tactic they use is denial which is a compulsive feature of narcissism where the narcissist willfully believes or pretends that traumatic events or circumstances do not exist or didn't happen, even when presented with evidence to the contrary. This it kind of goes hand in hand with, with gaslighting. Gaslighting is a form of denial. Mm, definitely. The next is hypervigilance. To cope with a chaotic and often psychologically and physically abusive environment, people close to narcissism adapt by becoming hypervigilant to the threat or attack that will most likely occur. They're always on guard, seeking to anticipate and potentially avoid being in the line of fire. Hypervigilance is emotionally and psychologically debilitating because it drains the body's natural defense system by constantly overloading it. Hypervigilance also leads to complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, and illness. Narcissists themselves are hypervigilant to anything that might trigger their narcissistic injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. And they, they are very aware of our defense mechanisms and very quick to point out that we're being defensive. However, they are even so you know, it's the pot calling the kettle black. So yes, I'm defensive because I'm always under attack. <laughs> and but then they're on the defensive just in an effort to keep the narcissistic injury from happening. So to protect their ego and to avoid the negative emotions, they're constantly on edge and in defensive mode. Yeah, just ready to pounce, basically, mm-hmm. which causes, again, the target person to be hypervigilant themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, you would have your hair perfect, your makeup perfect, your clothing perfect, the house perfect for when he came home, because you were, I would say, hypervigilant. And another term could be walking on eggshells with this person, always on guard for the trigger, this, you know, whatever it is that is going to cause the anger, mm-hmm. the rage, the displeasure yeah. at you. Mm -hmm. Our next set of buzzwords fall into the discard stage. So the first term is flying monkeys. 
And this term comes from the children's book, The Wizard of Oz by Frank Baum in the very popular 1939 movie based on it. So the movie starred Judy Garland as Dorothy, the young heroine of the story. Dorothy and her little dog Toto are swept up by a tornado in Kansas and end up in the magical land of Oz. Dorothy's house lands on the Wicked Witch of the East, killing her. Her sister, the Wicked Witch of the West, blames Dorothy for her sister's death and seeks revenge. The Wicked Witch has a very scary troop of flying monkeys who do her bidding. She sends them after Dorothy. So flying monkeys are the slang term for any group of people that the narcissist uses as allies to persecute someone that the narcissist hates. To gain their support, the narcissist makes up lies that portray the other person as evil and the narcissist as the real victim. And the narcissist will use flying monkeys. So for example, number two has not done this, but I could see how if number two had maintained a relationship with one of his daughters, he could have used her as a flying monkey, someone to kind of fly into my space, to my life as a like a spy to check out what I'm doing and if I'm seeing anyone as a way to gain insight into my life. So the narcissist uses people, if you haven't picked up on that trend yet, but uses people. And so flying monkeys can be used in that way as well. The one good thing about number two is he doesn't have any flying monkeys at his disposal. He has very few relationships with people. Mm -hmm. Talk about leaving people in their wake. Mm -hmm. That one big conversation I had with him completely turned me off to ever wanting to forge a relationship with a friendship with him. Mm -hmm. You know, he was, he was just so arrogant and knowing what my future course in life should be. Mm -hmm. And I think he has that effect on people. Therefore, he doesn't have the ability to send flying monkeys your way. Mm -hmm. There are other types of narcissists. I know we're going to go into eventually talk about the, there's at least eight. I don't know. Sometimes I think I've read that there's 11 different times. There's a bunch of different types of narcissists. We'll whittle it down and try to make it more concise. But there are other types of narcissists that are much more amiable and do garner lots of people as their congregation, their cult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's where this really comes in. I know number two doesn't even have a Facebook presence. So he, y'all don't have mutual friends and that sort of thing, which is really good for you. But I know other people are fearful of that, that those flying monkeys could be stalking their Facebook page and report back. Mm -hmm. And then the narcissist can in turn come back and rage against you Hoover you, mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. Just because of the inside information from his monkeys. Mm -hmm. So falling right in line with flying monkeys is smear campaign. And this happens again, we're in the discard phase of the relationship cycle. So the smear campaign, the narcissists engage in smear campaigns to discredit others within their family or their social sphere. Narcissists may smear another person because that person sees through their mask. They are trying to conceal preemptively their own abuse of that person, or they are taking revenge because that person offended or rejected them. Narcissists may conduct a smear campaign for lesser reasons, such as jealousy or resentment. Narcissists can be quite calculating in their process of discrediting or socially isolating their target using innuendo and gossip or outright lies to family, friends, neighbors, and community members. 
They don't hesitate to smear an ex to their children, scapegoated child to friends and relatives, or a colleague to other colleagues. The smear campaign usually happens behind the victim's back, often with the assistance of the narcissist's enablers or flying monkeys. A moment ago, you talked about complex post-traumatic stress disorder, also called CPTSD. This is a very common condition in narcissistic abuse victims, as well as people with pathological narcissism. And here are a few of the very disabling symptoms that CPTSD brings. Hypervigilance, which you described earlier, a generalized fear, anxiety, and agitation, overreactivity, insomnia, nightmares, self-isolation, difficulty trusting others, self-destructive behavior, and intrusive thoughts. The good thing about CPTSD, if there is a good thing, versus plain PTSD is that CPTSD, once the instigator of the trauma is removed, then healing can begin. Mm. Uh, With PTSD, that usually occurs from a very, it can occur either with an isolated incident or a string of childhood trauma or being exposed to war. But complex post-traumatic stress disorder is typically known to be healed from once that subject of trauma is removed. Oh, wow. Very interesting. It takes time. It's not a magic pill, but you can heal from it. If you can recognize these symptoms in yourself, it's good to seek a therapist, a counselor to help you work through this. And like you said, once you can identify that healing is possible and a bright, shiny future exists. So the big playbook favorites is coming up. If the narcissist returns to his or her supply person, this next buzzword truly illustrates how the cycle begins again. And that word is hoovering. It's derived from the name of the Hoover vacuum cleaner. And to Hoover has become synonymous with using a vacuum cleaner to suck up dirt. The term hoovering has now been extended to refer to a narcissist's attempt to suck a discarded mate back into a relationship by saying and doing things that that ex would find irresistible. Mm -hmm. They know your weakness. They know your vulnerability. They know what makes you tick. They know what makes you happy. They know what displeases you. And they know how to play right into your hands again if you're not on guard, if if you haven't become educated to their tactics and identifying the red flags and their ability to manipulate you back into their hands. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say it's true that the longer their relationship goes on, the less hoovering required? Because we're just looking for any, like, we'll take crumbs at this point. You know, seven Mm -hmm. years into the marriage, I would have taken just a kind look and taken him back into my good graces without any questions asked. It would have just taken the slightest thing to, to win me back over. Definitely. And love bombing as well. You just didn't need that much. Mm -hmm. You would take crumbs. Definitely. Hoovering is once they feel you slipping away and You know, we can definitely look at the last two years when he was sending you the little church things, trying to appeal to your spiritual appetite and eventually how that accelerated into sending you things like birthday cards and Valentine's cards and spiritual books. Those were definite examples of hoovering, trying Mm -hmm. to suck you back in. He hoovered the crap out of you Mm -hmm. or tried to. He didn't, it didn't work. If you had not been seeking that ongoing education and receiving counseling and 
educating and arming yourself with what was really going on, you saw the light. And mm -hmm. so while maybe some of those hoovering techniques he tried on you probably struck a chord with you here and there, mm -hmm. you at least finally had the cognition, the rational, logical part of your brain was awake and you were able to not be sucked in. Mm -hmm. You know, that hasn't been easy. I know in, in a lot of my retelling of events and things, I listen back and I think, oh gosh, I made that sound easy. Like, oh, I just called the hotline and called an attorney. And I mean, I'm just glossing over, but that's a negative connotation, but I'm not divulging a lot of the emotional aspect that goes along with this, which was gut-wrenching and heart-wrenching. Mm -hmm. And there are times when I'll smell a smell or hear a sound or see a movie, something that reminds me of the good moments with him. And there is that longing and there is that microsecond flash of, well, maybe he has changed, you know, mm. and then it doesn't last long, but it's there. So I, I do want people to know that I haven't taken any of this lightly and it has not been easy. I just haven't shared the the gut wrenching necessarily back and forth and a lot of processing I've had to do with you in regards to going back to him. Because while so many things he's done have been a turnoff, there's still that element of, you know, I doubt myself. Did I, did I do the right thing? Maybe he's the one in the million that does change mm. or could it be so bad? You know, now I don't have anyone and sure would be nice to go out to eat with someone. Maybe it could be him. And the comfortableness of, I know what he is and the fear of, I don't know what other people in my future are mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. what ifs of what if I come across another one? Yeah. They fool me in the love bombing stage mm -hmm. and it is scary. And that is why we are doing this podcast is we're going over these buzzwords just to lay a foundation, but we have, I'm sure it's going to be two episodes that are going to talk about the red flags. Mm -hmm. And that's where in the love bombing, those red flags are there. Mm-hmm. And we put blinders on to them because they're appealing to one or two or three of our main values, you know, or they're just the right height or they have the right eye color or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we discard those red flags and those instinctual thoughts we have of this is not a healthy person mm -hmm. and this is not going to be a good future if I pursue anything deeper with this person. And I would say that it is far better to be alone and healthy mm. than in a relationship and unhealthy because absolutely it true I know I've said this but it's just death by a thousand paper cuts mm -hmm. when we're in relationships with these people and there does come a time where you've got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first right and that's not being selfish it's survival mm -hmm. and it's time to survive and it is painful to end relationships. Not only did I end a relationship with a husband, I ended a relationship with his family to a large degree. You know, it's definitely a different relationship. The relationship with his children is different. So there are a lot of relationships. It's not just the one that you're in. It's, it's a ripple effect. But at the same time, you can drown in that ripple. And I don't think that's good either. Not for and the sake of just being in love. Exactly. Or for having a relationship. Right. Absolutely. There's a lot to say for mental health. And you can't have mental health in 
those relationships. You cannot. Mm -mm. No. And the moment you decide no more is the hardest step, but you only have to take the step once. That's right. Yeah. And you find your support system. Mm -hmm. You find they were there all along, just like Dorothy, back to the Dorothy theme. We were here all along. Mm -hmm. And the greatest source of strength is within ourselves. We just haven't tapped into that yet. And once you find that strength, I don't think there's anybody that could tear it down again. That's right. We haven't really touched very much on the fact, the fact that a narcissistic relationship is a cult of two. And you can read about cults and it is a narcissistic relationship Mm -hmm. and how powerful a cult is. It truly brainwashes you and you truly fall in line with what that cult leader is commanding and demanding you to do. Mm -hmm. And it does become an uncomfortable comfortableness. Yeah. That's possible. Mm -hmm. And we have to deprogram ourselves Mm -hmm. from that. Yeah. The cult of two is isolating, just like cults are very isolating. Mm. They, a cult of two puts into practice customs and rules that aren't traditional (laughs) and are a little bit unconventional that the normal public would really stop and think about. And it's addicting as well. I mean, you can think of any, um, look up, you know, the history of any cult and those cult members are addicted to that cult leader. There's that symbiotic relationship, but there's also that I will praise you at all costs type of relationship, which is very, very dangerous. Cult members put aside who they are. They shave their heads. They dress a different way. They go and live in compounds. They do all of those things. And to a large degree, I did those things too. I wanted my hair to be how he wanted it, my dress to be how he wanted it. And yeah, it is a cult on a small scale. It's a cult of two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's hard to get out. It's very hard because you do fall into, this is easier just to fall in line than to try to figure out how am I going to make my life work outside of this? I don't have the tools and strategies to do this on my own, but you do, mm-hmm. but you you've, do. you've been talked out of the rational cognitive part of your brain. Mm-hmm. You have that ability within everything we need is right there. Mm-hmm. And you've had it all along, like the Wizard of Oz says. <laughs> yep. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. All right. So now for the more positive part, y'all. Um, Yay. So <laughs> when you are ready to leave the relationship and start your own healing, there are some terms and more importantly, some behaviors that you can do to help yourself in the healing process. And the first one is called gray rock. Yes, gray rock. And if you're involved with a narcissist whom you cannot avoid, many people advise going gray rock. A gray rock is boring and dull and just sits there and it's just a gray rock. This means that your manner during your interactions with the narcissist is as boring, unemotional, and neutral as you can manage. Essentially, you become as uninteresting as a gray rock, which I think you became when you never responded to any of his texts. And I think the only, the last one you responded to was, do you have this extra car key? And you said, no, I don't even know if you put a period at the end of that. I don't think I did. (laughs) And that, I just don't think you can get more gray rock than that. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Yeah. You were a nice, boring gray rock for the next two years of his 
inundation of texting, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So in, you know, in everyday life, if you have a narcissist in your life that you, you're unable to avoid, then the gray rock technique is really, really powerful. And it's just by making closed statements back to the narcissist. So things like, wow, that's really interesting. Just leave it there. So basically, you're just not engaging in a conversation, really. You're not offering anything of yourself. You're not necessarily asking any questions of them. You're just making very closed statements and to be as boring as you can. This is particularly helpful if you are having to stay in contact with the narcissist, maybe due to co-parenting. This is a way to prevent you from getting hoovered back in because if you don't take their bait, they will look somewhere else. And it may take time, but they will look somewhere else. So just, it's hard because as people pleasers and loving, compassionate people, we do strive to connect with people, but you have to know who's safe to connect with. And these people are dangerous. So gray rock is, if you can't go no contact, gray rock is the best method. Absolutely. Being a gray rock in their life does not fulfill that supply they are trying to get from you, that bump, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And if you can keep it up consistently, like you said, they'll go away mm-hmm. because they're not getting anything from you. Mm-hmm. No reaction. And you have to fight hard because they can come at you with some good ones. They know you. Mm-hmm. They know what makes you tick. Mm-hmm. And this is a brilliant skill to develop. It's a muscle to develop. Yes. And having said, I'm so glad you said that because you know, you can't be fit by going to the gym once a week. You have Mm. to be fit by practicing fitness in multiple areas of your life, multiple times per week. So you can't become an expert on gray rock or any technique in dealing with narcissists by practicing it just in the moment. And you have to build these muscles and practice it. You have to rehearse for when Mm. you know you're going to be in their presence. You have to rehearse for that. And I will say from experience, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be, for example, not too long ago, I knew I was going to be at an event with a narcissist. So I prepped myself before the event and I rehearsed some of these gray rock statements and I pretended in my mind some things that the narcissist might say or do. And I role played in my mind how this might all play out. And what could my responses be if this person said, X, Y, or Z. So then when I'm there in the moment, I'm very prepared. But then in the moment, you've got to stay in the moment and you have to hear what they're saying and also interpret what they're saying and then respond accordingly. So it is exhausting. It is not easy. Like Tony and I could sit, your husband will be on the phone and he'll come in. I'll hear him say, you're still on the phone. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah. And if you hadn't come in, you know, we'd probably be here a couple more hours, but It's not an easy conversation. There is no reciprocal interest. You'll find they're not interested in you. They won't ask you any questions about you. You have to just be constantly on guard and alert. But while it is exhausting, it is so freeing. And you just know at the end of the night or at the end of the event, oh, I didn't get sucked in by that. Or that didn't really bother me. Or they said, They're going to make $2 million next year. And you're like, wow, that is so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that. And at the end of it, they love you all the more for it because you were interested in them. You didn't give them an ounce of anything. You just fed back to them. Wow, that is so interesting. Really? I didn't know that. Gray Rock next to no contact is just the best tool. And you really, all that to say, do need to really practice. Yep. It's taking your power back. Yes. It's building and fortifying your boundaries. Yes. And you just, you put that a part of your boundaries. Mm -hmm. And what better way to make a boundary than put a big old rock there? Mm -hmm. And the more you gray rock, the less attractive you become to that narcissist, which is also a good thing because then they won't, they won't seek you out for that supply. So you just stand on that air hose and look pretty. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yes. Gray rock is the best technique to use if you're in a co-parenting relationship or a business relationship or family that you just cannot avoid. But if you can avoid the people who are narcissistic or toxic, then no contact is the best option. And no contact is exactly what it says. It's having no contact with that person in any way, shape or form. So it's not replying to their texts. It's not answering their phone calls. It's not answering the door replying to their letters. It's not even looking them up on social media and it's not any of those things. And this is really hard. This is, I think what we would call in the addiction world, cold turkey. And it can be really hard. With number two, I did block him for a good period of time on several occasions, but because of his emotional instability that would show up from time to time, I would then unblock him to kind of keep tabs on things. But during the times he was unblocked, I still was not engaging at all. So I do want to be careful when telling people about no contact because so many people on the internet and even the experts on narcissistic relationships will tell you no contact, no contact, no contact. And they're kind of hypervigilant about that and just saying, that's it, cut it off. I would disagree. I would say trust your gut. And if you think that going no contact is actually less safe, then you need to figure out what that means for you. And what that meant for me was not blocking him on text or phone call, but it meant not replying. And so I was still able to see what he would text and I was still able to hear the voicemails, but my portion of no contact was not replying in any way. So I think it's important for you to do what will keep you safe. Anything else? No, that's good. So our final buzzword of the day is closure. So closure in a normal relationship involves open and honest communication about what has gone wrong. You wish each other well, and you say goodbye and you move on. After a relationship with a narcissist ends, a target is left with so many questions and no answers. To put it simply, you get no closure when you end it with a narcissist. You don't. And I think many people seek closure. We're human beings. And that is the way our minds work. We want to put a a period at the end of the sentence with most things. So my experience with lack of closure was in my early 20s. I was in a narcissistic romantic relationship and I finally broke up with him for the, I don't know, 15th time, something like that. And every time I broke up with him, he came back to me and hoovered me back. And I finally, I finally ended it. And this was a time period when narcissism wasn't in the mainstream vernacular. I didn't, I didn't understand what he was. He wasn't the violent sort. He was the 
lying, cheating jerk sort. And I didn't get closure after the breakup. And I was always left wondering why I couldn't figure out that puzzle that that relationship was. And it turns out that he was simply a very insecure, attention-seeking, wounded person who, had I married, would have made life most miserable and would have definitely, I have no doubt, ended in divorce. And maybe we'll do an episode one day on that. I don't know that that much attention needs to be given to him. I can just give examples here and there in our upcoming episodes. But I didn't get closure like, you know, the pretty period at the end of the sentence with him until much later when Lisa and I were starting our venture into narcissism and I was able to label him and see that that wasn't really a puzzle. It was just one little Lego block (laughs) that didn't snap anywhere. And that was not a relationship that I could have done anything to correct. I could not make that person not be the lying, cheating con artist that he was and possibly still is to this day. So as far as closure goes, that's one of those things that you need to just like with no contact and there's curiosity and people that love other people, it's very hard to discard them. And, you know, that's difficult when you're a healthy person and you've been with an unhealthy person, you're not going to get the closure. What do you think about it, Lisa? I think that's one of the hardest parts as loving, compassionate, people-pleasing people Mm. is we're, we're left holding the bag of what if, and we can't live life that way. Life is full of what ifs and regrets, but that is part of the damage that these people do to us is the second guessing, the constant questioning. But it goes back to what we've been saying this episode, and that is if we didn't cause it, then we don't have a way to fix it. You know, it's it's like asking for forgiveness for something we didn't do. It just simply doesn't work. But I think the what ifs and that not having the closure has been one of the hardest. Mm-hmm things to to get over and so we're looking to that other person to help us create the closure but they are so unhealthy they're incapable of doing that so we have to do it for ourselves and i think this knowledge is the closure that we seek we'll never get the apology and if we do it'll be a faux apology Mm. we'll never get that apology and they will never change so we have to create our own closure oh that's that's great Very well said. And that's why it's important to have your support system, your friends, possibly a therapist, a counselor Mm -hmm. that you can process that with and help you see that it's not you. And there was never anything you were going to be able to do. And -hmm. you did enough. You did enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's an awareness of our of our own limitations of our own flaws. But those limitations and flaws didn't cause the abuse. The abuser caused the abuse. Mm. Yeah. And it may come across in the podcast of something that was so easy to do, but there's been a lot of healing and a lot of processing in in between times, in between these waves of emotion. Yeah, we could talk a whole lot about that too. But closure is something that we have to take power over and provide for ourselves because we'll never get it from them. We will never have that satisfied feeling from them. That's right. Well, what a wonderful couple of episodes we just recorded, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, 
you know, we've said all along that knowledge is power and these episodes hopefully give our listeners a, a primer, as you said earlier, on the narcissistic terminology and, you know, some education on the way these people behave and this little dance that we get involved in with them. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this concludes episode seven. We will talk to y'all next week on Here's, Here's Your Red, Red Flag. Flag. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. I feel well to the mirror. Here's Your Red Flag was written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa and edited by Tony. Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Thanks, y'all.